We are in part eight of our King series, and we're going to be talking about Elijah the prophet for the next three weeks. I entitled this morning's messenger, The Harbinger of God, and I want to very quickly draw your attention to the fill in the blank on that sheet and on that app with just one thought. Y'all, Christianity can be hard, yeah? Even if you do it right. Now, if you do it wrong, it's terrible. If you do it right, it's still tiring. How do we know that? Because Paul the apostle referred to it as, I have fought the good fight, I have ran the race. All these things are tiring. All these things are difficult. Even if you do it right, it's hard. But the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is true as well. Christianity is twice as hard alone. Y'all, it's already difficult, but if you're gonna try to do it alone and we're not gonna be connected, it's brutal. We have to have one another. The number one way that God is gonna minister to you is through another person. If you are isolated, you are missing a tremendous amount of ministry that God is trying to do. You're not receiving even the answers to prayer to a lot of things that you are throwing up to heaven because he's saying, listen, I'm trying to get those answers to you. They just happen to go through people and you're avoiding people. So how in the world am I supposed to answer your prayer request? We need each other. Why? Because God said, even before sin entered the world, it is not good for man to be alone. There you go. All right. Well, let's jump into this story. We are going to pick up where we left off last week. We were talking about Ahab, King Ahab, uh, one of the most wicked kings of Israel in their history and his wife Jezebel. And we kind of covered the summary of his life from start to finish, but we left some gaps along the way. I want to go back and fill in those gaps because we introduced a brand new character, a man by the name of Elijah. You'll be hard-pressed to find a more important figure in Jewish history than people like Abraham, Moses, and this man, Elijah. Would you turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 17? 1 Kings 17, 1. It's page 299 in the Bible under the seat in front of you, unless you're at home. There we go. Okay, moving on. There is no Bible in the seat in front of you. Okay, here we go. 1 Kings 17, 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to the evil king Ahab, as Yahweh the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall neither be dew nor rain for years except by my word. All right, recap what's going on. We have Israel separated north and south. The north is being run by terrible kings. The south has good king, bad king, complicated kings. They have kind of a mixture. But in the north with King Ahab, he and his wife had replaced Yahweh, the God of Israel, with the God Baal, which we're gonna refer to as Baal because it's easier to say. That is not really how it's pronounced, but that's easier to say. They have now made Baal the national religion, removing God. God's not okay with that, so he's going to confront the issue through his primary man, Elijah. And Elijah says this, 
All right, so here's what I'm hearing. Baal is your new God, right? So this dude is a storm God. He's the God of fertility. He's the God of rain. He's the God that causes the seasons to change. He is what? Riding on the clouds, throwing lightning bolts. Is this what you're telling me? I'm gonna tell you he's bogus. And in order to prove that, God and I are going to shut off the rain. So like a little spigot, we're gonna shut that thing off and there's gonna be no rain and it's not just gonna be for a little bit and you're like, oh, well maybe Baal's just taking a nap. No, it's gonna be for years. There is no way you're ever gonna realize, there's no way you're ever gonna deny that Yahweh is the one in charge of the rain and he shuts it off. All right, that's where our story begins. Pick it up in verse two. And the word of Yahweh came to Elijah, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan River. You shall drink from the brook and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of Yahweh. He went and lived by the brook that is east of the river and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. All right, we need to pause. <laughs> this really happened. All right. Now this really happened. And what everyone wants to do is kind of think of some magical, cool way this happened. This practically is weird. Can we all agree? Okay. Every morning, every evening, birds Ravens, which by the way, ravens are unclean birds. Isn't that interesting? So in the Israel setting of clean and unclean, they're unclean birds. Something unclean is touching his food every day. They come in and bring him bread and meat. First of all, where are they getting it? I mean, that's weird, yeah? Are they like dive bombing all the barbecues of Israel, right? And just grabbing and he's like, well, I guess today we're having spare ribs. All right, fantastic. Today we're having hamburger. They're coming through. And here's the other funny part. When they come and they grab the meat, it's not like Cinderella or Snow White. You know what I'm saying? Where they're like singing and the birds are helping getting them dressed and all that stuff. Here's how it really looks. Some big old black nasty bird goes right and just hacks some piece of meat and bread down on your rock there and then you eat that one. And how incredibly consistent are these birds? Every morning, every evening, it's like they're on a work program, right? And they're just time checking in, you know, and going in and out. This whole thing is just bizarre, all right? So love that story, moving on, here we go. Pick it up in verse seven. And after a while, the brook dried up. Why? Because God shut off the rain. There was no rain in the land. Then the word of Yahweh came to him and he said, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to the country of Sidon, that's outside Israel, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Now, no more bird feeding. Now we're going to woman feeding, all right? So a woman is going to feed him. When he goes there, you begin to see the powerful miracles God does through him. They are extraordinary. Because they need special attention, we are actually going to cover those miracles next week when Pastor Parnell reveals the miracle worker of Elijah. All right, so we're going to dive into that. We're going to jump ahead in the story two and a half more years. 
The rain was shut off for three and a half years. Let's pick up the story in chapter 18, verse 1. After many days, the word of Yahweh came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, the king, and I will send rain once again upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine, because of the drought, was severe in the capital of the north, Samaria. Jump to verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said, is that you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah said, I didn't trouble Israel, you have. Your father's house. Because you have abandoned the commandments of Yahweh and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all the representatives of Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. Call the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. We're going to have a showdown. Now, this is where we're going to get into this story. This story is perhaps one of my favorite in all of scripture. It's something that resonates in my spirit. And I'm going to be, uh, you're going to see me kind of light up because I think it's such a powerful story. But the real quick background, in case you weren't here last week, is that this storm god, this whole idea, he had a consort, a sister wife, kind of a creepy mythology story where her name is Asherah and his name was Baal. Together, they kept the cycle going for the harvest. So Ahab, the bad king, was really into the dude side of things, Baal. So he had 450 prophets that ministered there. Jezebel, his wife, was into the lady side of things. She had all her crew, 400 prophets, ministering for Asherah, the female side of it. You're going to find out Ahab shows up for the showdown. Jezebel does not. She stays home and keeps her crew at home. All right, here we go. So Ahab, verse 20, sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people didn't answer him a word. All right, this is the line in the sand. How long are you going to keep trying to play both sides? That's not a thing. You cannot stay on the fence. You got to pick away. You cannot serve two gods. Now, this is a timely message no matter when you read it, no matter where you read it. Why? Because human beings always want to play all the sides. We don't ever want to make a decision and cut off anything. We want to be able to have a religion of our own making. We want to do the buffet style, right? Where you go through and you pick a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Man, I love this whole idea of Buddhism because of this. And I, I love Hinduism's vibe here. And, and I love the dedication of Islam. And, and, and I kind of love the, the prophet Jesus. And when we start shoving this conglomeration together, you have to understand nobody's cool with that. God's not cool with that. You got to make a decision. And you're like, okay, well, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm totally, I'm, I'm soul into Jesus. Are you? Because looking at your life, I still think you are the other God in your life. 
Because you got to remember, you can't go self and God. It's either got to be God or self. That's the battle I think that we fight with the most. Either he is God of all or he's not God at all. You've heard that? Ah, powerful. All right, so he tells them, you got to make a choice. What are you going to do? He said, in order to help you make that choice, let's have a battle. This is almost like a survivor thing, right? The show Survivor, like, let's have a battle, a showdown here. He said, basically, you get a bull, I get a bull, and we'll figure this thing out. Pick it up uh, where it says, you call upon the name of your God, I'll call upon the name of my God, Yahweh, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And everyone says, Right on, let's do this. Pick it up in verse 25. Uh, real quick side note. Why fire? I mean, if you're going to do a showdown, you can do it any other way. You could just say, hey, the God that responds with a bunny rabbit. I mean, that could be, that could be a test, yeah? Whoever can pull a rabbit out of their hat, that would be sweet. Why are we doing fire from the sky? That's a little bit random. Well, it's because Elijah knows that they're somehow going to try to worm out of this. When God shows up, they're going to try to find some excuse. So he said, here's what we're going to do. Let me just go into your turf. What, what are you saying about your bogus God? He does what? He does what? Oh, he's a storm God, a rain God, rides on clouds, throws what? Lightning bolts. So if lightning hits the ground, what tends to happen? It lights on fire. So you're telling me that your God's super good at fire from the sky. Great, let's do that. I'm going to go right into your wheelhouse so you don't have any excuses. Because you may say, well, Baal's not good at that. Whatever else we pick. So let's pick his best thing. Fire from the sky. He can do that, right? Oh, yeah, for sure he can do that. That's like his thing. Oh, okay. Let's do that. Pick it up, verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourself one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. Call upon the name of your God, but you don't get to set fire to it. That's kind of the point. They took the bull that was given them. They prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered. They limped around the altar that they had made, and at noon, Elijah, like every good Christian man, mocked them, <laughs> saying, maybe you need to cry louder. He's a god after all. Maybe he's way up there. Either he's thinking about stuff. Maybe he's relieving himself. <laughs> maybe he's on a journey, or maybe he's asleep, and you got to wake him up. And so they all cried louder and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and me. Yeah. Woo. Y'all think you got a biblical name? I got a biblical name. It's right there. Right? My name is in the Bible. Cut themselves with swords and lances. My name means sharp thing. Bam. Right there. All right. How did it work out for them? Until the blood gushed out upon them. Fantastic. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, which is 3 p.m. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. I want to talk about the reality of gods. You hear about this and you're like, what is the whole idea? Like there's gods. Like are there a bunch of them? 
Like, is that whole mythology thing, is that true, that Yahweh, our God, is only one of many? Oh, no. The very concept of Judeo-Christian view is there is one God. Now, we as Christians separate from the traditional Judeo view by saying he is one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Jews say, no, 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 there's just the Father. Now, in that scenario, it is not three gods, there's one God. The Jews, three times a day, were to say the Shema. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is one. So there is real God and everything else is bogus. Real creator, everything else is created. So what's the deal with all the gods then? Well, here's how it works. Human nature picks up an idea. Let's say the idea is I need to have more control in my life over the nature around me. I'm going to design a God and put all my attention onto that God. Now, once that idea is started and you go, well, how is that a God? Because a God is anything that you worship. You go, well, I'm not singing to it. No, no, no. You have a limited view of worship. Worship means you attribute value to it. If you start paying attention to it, organizing your agendas towards it, organizing your priorities around it, stuff like that, it is a God to you. Now, once that is set up, do you think that Satan and his demons are going to take advantage of that system? Of course they are. So what are they going to do? Hey, I'll play that puppet game. Boom, I'll jump right into that. You guys want to call it Baal? Sweet, I'll put that name tag on. And whenever you think you want power and everything, I'll mess with you. I'll play with you. I'll give you power. I'll show up at different things. I'll make magic stuff happen. It's how all witchcraft works. People have an idea, and Satan goes, thank you very much for the creation of that. I'll inhabit that, and starts working behind the scenes as long as we're not focused on the God of all creation. Does that make sense? Do we have any gods today? Of course we do. Now, they're not like they were in the Old Testament. They're things like self and money. You go, well, how can money be a god? Well, think, it does what God does. Man, I feel really insecure about whether or not we're going to be able to pay our bills. I need more money. Well, isn't God supposed to provide for you? And then, you know what? I feel like I need more security for my future. I need more money. Isn't God supposed to be your security? Well, you know what? I need more stuff in my life. Isn't God supposed to be the one that brings you your daily bread? But we use money for it. Money does what God does, so we make it a God, and we put all of our attention. We will trade our entire lives in order to get more money. You think Satan's not going to jump in on that one? Of course he is, because what's going to happen? Dude, the more money you get, and all of a sudden you start being able to buy more stuff, and you get more stuff, and you get more stuff, and all of a sudden you have a house full of stuff. But you're no further along. It's empty. Why? Because you have someone other than God trying to fill a need. That's how gods work. It's always been the case. Well, in this one, they actually thought that there was someone out there they could talk to. Were demons talking to them? Yeah. But you know during this showdown, God was looking over at the demons going, don't you dare. They're like, hey, we're out. Okay. Pick it up in verse 30. 
Elijah said to all the people, all right, come here, it's my turn. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of Yahweh that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the Lord, the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with these stones, he built an altar in the name of Yahweh. And he dug a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. They did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. They did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench with water. All right, this is my story. This is a story that resonates in my spirit in a variety of ways. One of the most primary ways is I believe it is one of the most significant descriptions of how to have revival in the entire Bible. What is revival? Revival is when our hearts, the hearts of people, are turned to focus on God like never before. If you think about revival in a personal heart, it means you finally are caught up away from all distractions. God is your everything and you're on fire for him. Anybody need some of that in their life? A corporate revival looks like the whole group together, we start uniting together and we start focusing on what God wants us to focus on. We put all our stuff behind and we as a unit, as a family, as a body, begin to be worshiping God and he becomes the sole person of our affections. Do we need some of that? In our region, we need that. We need revival. Now, what does this story have to do with revival? I wish I could go on for hours to tell you what it means, but I'm gonna go through it very quickly. But I'm gonna keep sowing those seeds into our congregation because we desperately need revival. So here's how I see it. It seems so clear to me. Let's go through the story again. What did Elijah do? What was the first thing that he did? He repaired the altar of Yahweh. Why was it knocked down? Because people didn't care anymore. So what's the first thing you gotta do in order to prepare for revival? We've got to make God the main thing. Y'all, church is not primarily about making friends. Church is not primarily about getting your needs met. Church is not primarily about singing songs, and it's not primarily about hearing a good message. Church is about God. And until he is our everything, that we go to church because we want to go honor him, we're not going to see the revival we want to see. Until in our hearts, we don't put God on the throne as the main passion, we're not going to see revival. So he starts by making God the number one thing. And how does he build the altar? With how many stones? Twelve. Anybody remember history? Where are we at? Is Israel together? They are not. They're split. Ten in the north, two in the south. They don't even hang out together. You can't build an altar with God with only 10 or two stones. You need all 12. 
Why is this important? Because if you and I want any sort of regional unity, if we want any sort of family unity, we better get over the idea of, well, you're this conservative and you're this charismatic and you're, well, you're, this is a primary black church. Well, this is a primarily white church. Well, well, this, you guys are the fancy ones and the rich ones and you guys are the poor. Forget all that garbage. We're family. And until we get on the same page, hanging out together, getting over ourselves, until we get all 12 stones together, God's not happy with his altar. What's the next thing? He digs a trench around the outside. Y'all, how long did that take? I mean, I don't know if he brought a shovel. I don't know if he was doing the little dog digging thing. I don't know how he was making the trench around, but boy, that takes a while. And it is super boring digging a trench. What does that represent? It represents there's a bunch of stuff that God wants us to do underground before we get going in revival. There's a bunch of prayer. There's a bunch of loving on people. There's a bunch of restoration. There's a bunch of things that he wants to do just to prepare underneath what's going on. Then he did what? He put the wood on it just so. It had to be orchestrated in a way that could support the offering that was going to be laid upon it. I don't know if you knew this, but bulls are kind of big. If you throw a big old bull on a poorly set infrastructure, you have falling bull. You understand what I'm saying? We want that thing to stay there the whole time. And the bull has to be prepared just so. You can't just prepare it any way you want. There is a specified way to do that. What does that all mean? It means there is an infrastructure that we need to have in our region, in our church, in our hearts that can sustain the fire of God for a long period of time. Every revival shuts down because no one was keeping the fire alive. We have a bunch of flame outs. Somebody gets fired up, boom, they skyrocket and then they grow cold. We got churches getting fired up and then they grow cold. We got a region that will fire up and then it grows cold. All revivals end because we are not tending to the fire of God. We don't have the infrastructure to handle it. What do you think God's been doing in the region of Sacramento through City Pastors Fellowship? What do you think he's doing by getting us all together and getting us unified? What do you think he's doing by allowing us to pray for one another and care about one another and the churches are starting to lift one another up? That's called infrastructure. So when his fire hits, we can keep that fire burning. What's the last thing he does? pours water all over it. You remember that? Anybody remember in the story, there's a drought? Where's the water from? I'll tell you, wherever that water is, it's pretty important. It's pretty valuable. You don't need to start pouring it out on the ground. People are like, dude, what are you doing, man? Three and a half years, no rain. You don't pour it on the ground. He's like, trust me on this one. We'll have plenty of rain in just a second. And they started pouring the water three times. Why did he pour so much water on there? Because he never wanted the other team to be able to say, it was a spontaneous fire. Uh, no, it wasn't. Is that doused enough for you? Is that wet enough for you? Is that fireproof enough for you? The water on the top is the miraculous element, the supernatural element on the revival. You have to understand that there needs to be a way on top of it that shows that if God doesn't bring the fire, it ain't ever going to come. 
You see, I'm not interested in what man can make. I'm not interested in strategy. I'm not interested in what a bunch of pastors can come up with and how to make everybody excited in the region. Forget all that garbage. I need an impossible revival. I want God to come in that everyone can say, there's no way that one church did that. There's no way that one group did that. It was either God or nothing. Oh, it was fireproof, unless it's a fire of God. Ah, what happens? Here we go. And Elijah said to the, oh, excuse me, and at the time of the offering of the oblation at 3 p.m., verse 36, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I did all these things at your word. Answer me, O Yahweh, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Pretty short prayer, huh? Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up all the water that was in the trench. And when everybody saw that, they fell on their faces and said, Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. Come on, how cool is that story? Now, here's what is so powerful to me. What's the difference in his prayers and Baal's prayers? Because we all look at those folks, right? We're like, man, you guys look pitiful. That's embarrassing. What you're like limping around. Why were they limping around the altar? Because they're acting like they're hurt. Because they're God. They'd already asked him once and he didn't do anything. So now they got to limp around and go, dude, I'm totally wounded here. Like I'm broken. Are you going to help me out? And then what? Nothing. So they start cutting themselves and they're pouring blood and they're like, you got to look, my situation is really serious. You've got to respond right now. And they cried out and cried out and cried out for hours. That was not at all what Elijah did. Elijah had a relationship and he said, God, this is more about you than it's about me. Do what you do. I set the tone. Let's go. Let me ask you a question. This is real personal. Is your prayer life more like Baal or more like Yahweh? How do you pray? Do you pray like those guys that were praying to Baal? You're like, what are you talking about? Well, here we go. God, would you help me out? And then no answer. God, I'm serious. God, I'm in seriously bad shape here. Like, this is a big deal. And then you got to keep going on and on because you got to convince God to pay attention to your situation. Let me explain something to you. The Bible says God knows how many hairs are on your head. You think he's not paying attention? He's paying attention to details you're not paying attention to. You're not telling him anything new. God, seriously, like this is a big deal. I'm wounded here. I'm wounded here. Then you start what? Bargaining. God, if you do this, I will do this. And, I, and then you start getting aggressive. And then you start getting mean and nasty. And you're not even a good God anyway. And you start manipulating. Y'all, those are the prayers of Baal. They're not the prayers of God. And the reason why you're doing that is because you don't have the relationship to have a shorter prayer. Hmm. 
How did it end? What were they playing for? Anybody remember? Was it pink slips? <laughs> for lives. Verse 40. And Elijah said to him, Seize the prophets of Baal, let none of them escape. They seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them all there. Dang. We're talking about God's judgment and clearing out the nation, turning it around. That was the goal. Now, I'm going to paraphrase what happens next. You can imagine how awkward Ahab feels, right? I mean, he just did this whole big thing, agreed to the setup. His team lost. All of his prophets that he thought were so cool just got slaughtered right in front of him. So you can imagine he doesn't want to look at Elijah. And Elijah looks over to him and he's like, smells like rain, buddy. You might want to go up and get a little bit of food for your tummy. I know you haven't eaten all day. You've been all wrapped up in this stuff, but rain's on its way. Then he had to go get the rain. So it says, look at verse 42. And Elijah went up on the top of Mount Carmel and he bowed down on the earth, put his face between his knees and said to his servant, go up, look, do you see any clouds? He went up and looked and said, nope, nothing. He said, try again, seven times. Have any of you ever operated in the supernatural? I mean, in terms of ministry, where you're like praying and doing healing stuff and you're involved in prophetic and stuff. If you've ever been involved in that, man, it is crazy. Why? Because God's in charge, not you. And so here's what happens. You get in this groove, right? You just had this big, huge, awesome move of God. And you're like, yeah, come on, right? Fire from heaven. This is awesome. And then you're like, all right, now let's do the rain thing. And you're like, woo, God, turn on the rain. Nothing. Uh, go check. Nope, there's nothing. All right, God, turn on the rain. Let's do that a second time. Nothing. God, turn on the rain nothing. You guys, seven times is a really long time. At what point do you start doubting that maybe it's not rain day? Maybe it was fire day, but it's not rain day. What if you got it wrong? See, everyone assumes that God is super abundantly clear to everyone in the Bible. And if he was really going to work through you in ministry, he would yell from heaven. God doesn't yell from heaven. If he does, the world's probably going to end. You see, he moves in much more subtle ways. You're going to find out that God talks real quiet sometimes. And when you're operating in the supernatural, you keep going, man, did I hear that right? Like, am I, am I on the right track here? Did I, is this going the way I'm supposed, because nothing's working right now. I thought I had the formula. Like, I just had this thing with God, and I was like, yeah, you and me, God, we're a team. And then all of a sudden, nothing, crickets. God, I said, what happened to the formula? And he's like, formula? What are you talking about? There's no formula. I'm God. You're not. We don't have a team like that. It's crazy. You can imagine the doubt that's filling this guy's mind, but he refuses to give up. And then he prays seven times. Look at this. At the seventh time, verse 44, he said, the servant said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. It's so cute. It's almost like, dude, you're getting the engine going. Go, 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 go. And he's like trying to rev the little car. And he's like, go, right? He's like, I see it. I see it. I see it. Elijah said, go tell Ahab, you better get in your chariot and go home lest the rain stop you. 
And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind. There was a great rain. And Ahab rode on his chariot to Jezreel. And the hand of Yahweh was on Elijah, who gathered up his garment and ran ahead of the chariot all the way to the entrance of Jezreel, 14 miles away. Okay, a couple things that you need to know about this. When we read this story, we're like, dude, of course it took seven times to pray. Seven's biblical, right? You should have known. Okay, the only time you know what God was doing is in retrospect. You always can look back and go, oh, I was praying for this one thing and God was orchestrating and moving all these pieces around and it wasn't the right timing until, well, yeah, in retrospect, it all makes sense. When you're in it, you're totally lost. All you can do is be obedient and it never goes the way you think it should. But afterwards, you're like, oh, makes sense. Good job, God. Fist pump, <laughs> right? Then it just says the rain starts pouring, everyone's taken off, and you have Elijah in a dress, putting his little, tying it all up, and he's like, whoa, and he just takes off running. And it says he's running ahead for 14 miles. This, I mean, he's not a marathon runner. So you either have the Holy Spirit motivating him, or you have him supernaturally empowering him. Because you know the phrase forerunner? It all came from people that would run ahead of the chariot. Usually the chariot would slow down. I can tell you Ahab was not slowing down. He was so freaked out by what happened, he had to get home to his wife to tell her what's going on so she can fix it. He's getting home, right? As he is flying and these horses are pulling this chariot at max speed, you got Elijah's who's like, whoa, running right ahead of him. Why? Well, the forerunner usually announces why the king is there. I wonder if Elijah is like, he lost, he lost, he lost. <laughs> or whether or not he was honoring Ahab of just going, dude, you got beat down today. I'll run ahead of you. I'll be nice to you today. I have no idea why. But it's interesting because when he gets home, Jezebel finds out what's up. And she looks over and makes a message to Elijah. May the gods do to me worse if I don't kill you today. And he freaks out. Why? Because she's killed people a ton. He knows Ahab's a wimp. Jezebel's not. She ain't playing, right? So he freaks out. Look at chapter 19, verse 4. Oh, excuse me. Let me just paraphrase. He runs down to stay in the town of Beersheba, meaning, remember how there's north and south? They're only in charge of the north. He runs down through their territory, down into the south, all the way to the bottom city, Beersheba. But he's not done. He's going to go even further. So he ran 90 miles away. He's now going to go further down in. Take a look at the next one. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, came and sat under a broom tree, and asked that he might die, saying, enough is enough, God. Take away my life. I'm no better than my father's. What is that? Dude, you just did like the coolest thing ever. Now you want to die? Now I'm going to tell you this. Ministry has ups and downs. You guys, the day after the worship prayer and healing night is always a letdown for me. 
I get all fired up. I'm praying like crazy. I'm, I'm all in for miracles and everything's going. And then the next day, it's like, wah, wah. And I'm bummed out. Now, so even though ministry has ups and downs, you can have mountaintop experiences and then there's a valley. But there's some of us, I want to go one step further. I think there's something more going on here. You guys, I think that Elijah is suffering from melancholy, possibly bipolar. Why? Because it's super common in God's kids to wrestle with depression. Could good Christians wrestle with depression? Yep, they do all the time. If you wrestle with depression, that does not mean that you're not a good Christian. If you want to talk about Martin Luther and go through church history, you're going to find out. Just, just research the phrase, dark night of the soul. Man, it's been talked about since day one, about the depression and the heaviness and the darkness that overcomes people. You guys, it doesn't mean that you're a bad Christian. It means you're human. He says, I just want to die. I'm no better than my father's. Why would he say that? Well, He's kind of right. In what way? He just did the most extraordinary miracle publicly, just slaughtered the 450 leaders of the bad religion. But did the nation change? Nope. He did his best and nothing. There's no change. How do you not feel like a loser at that point? God, I gave it my all and nothing is changing. Why am I even doing this? and he falls asleep. Now, this is such a pitiful thing because the broom tree doesn't even hold a lot of shade. It's only about nine feet tall, and he's just like hiding in a little bit of shade, and he's just like, I hate my life. I hate my life. Nobody likes me, and he's just like all hovered there. It's so sad. How does God handle it? Look at the next phrase, chapter 19, verse 5. This is powerful. And he laid down and slept under the broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, get up and eat. Anybody ever heard of the show Touched by an Angel? It's not about this. Okay. <laughs> and he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on stones and a jar of water, and he ate and drank, and what? He went to sleep again. This guy is wiped out. He pushed it to the max, and his body just collapsed. How did God handle it? He had an angel watching him the entire night. And he's not done. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey you're about to go on is too great for you. He arose and ate and drank and went in that strength for 40 days and 40 nights until he got to Mount Sinai in Egypt. Y'all, let me talk about geography for a minute. He was all the way up at Mount Carmel in the north, had gone all the way down to the south, went all the way into the desert. Now he's got to do a 10-day journey all the way down into Egypt. But it's going to take him 40 days. We don't know what he did for those 40 days, but that's a really long time. He's fasting. You know who else was on Mount Sinai for 40 days? Moses. You know who else had a 40-day time in the desert? Jesus. Are we all tracking on this? These are all pieces coming together. And he, finally, it says this. Verse 9, then he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of Yahweh came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, well, I've been jealous for you, God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, 
killed your prophets with a sword and I, even I only am left and now they wanna kill me. Is that true? No. You're gonna find out that God's gonna say, actually there's 7,000. You're not the only one, buddy. How many times in our melancholy do we allow our assumptions to make our darkness darker? You know what I'm talking about? Like, like it's not even true what we're sad about. God, we're the only ones. I have no one that loves me. And he's like, you sure? Because I don't think that's true. Yeah, it's true. I know it. I just want to go to bed again. What are you doing here? Interesting, I'll paraphrase. God says, I want you to hang on because I'm about to pass by. Anybody remember the phrase when Moses asked for God to pass by and he proclaimed his name? It says, and then there was an earthquake. There was a mighty wind. There was fire. Anybody putting together that a band showed up called Earth, Wind, and Fire? (laughs) Big concert right there. Huge concert. They're old. That's not true. It says, but God wasn't in any of those, but a sound like a still small voice came and Elijah wrapped his cloak and he went out to the edge of the cave. Take a look at this. It says this. It says, and behold, there came a voice to him and, and it said, what? What are you doing here, Elijah? Why does God ask us questions? Does he need to know the answer? No, we need to know the answer. And Elijah said, well, clearly you weren't listening the first time. So let me tell you again, I've been very jealous for you, God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life, and they want to take it away. What's his point? I'm doing all the work, and you're not helping out. Really? You're doing all the work. Is it possible to do ministry and end up bitter? What happens when that happens is because our hearts went astray and we were doing it in our own strength. We were doing it for the wrong motives. You guys, ministry is hard, but it doesn't have to end in bitterness. Not if you do it right. But it's easy of a temptation to fall into. So here's how God's response was. You need to get out of here. You're playing a pity party and it doesn't work. You know what? I've got jobs for you. You said you're done, right? You know what? Fine. I'll find a replacement for you. But you're only done when I say you're done. We got an awful lot to do. I need you to do three crucial things. I need you to anoint the next king of Syria, the enemy. I need you to anoint the next king of the north after Ahab. I need you to anoint your successor. So don't you tell me that you're done with ministry. You're done when I say you're done. Stop with this whole business of I'm the only one. There's 7,000 more. And you keep saying, I'm all alone. I'm all alone. Do you understand that Elijah only cracked once he felt alone? I'm all alone. Well, let me ask you a question, Elijah. Why are you all alone? Dude, do you think it just happens that you don't have to cultivate community? That you don't have to work on friendships? You think I'm supposed to have someone come and knock on your door? That's awkward for them. I'm not doing that. You've got to build into Christian community. 
The fact that you're all alone is why you're hurting so bad. I'll get you a partner in ministry, fine, only because time is short. You should have been working on this a long time ago. And I'll tell you this, you do not get to leave ministry until you have a transition plan and you don't have one. So I'm gonna grab one for you. His name is Elisha. Now get out of here, kid. I was super sweet to you the first time, but now you're just soaking in your sadness and we gotta go. On his way home, he walks by this field and there's this young man, strong young man, plowing with 12 oxen. Now what's the point of all that? He's rich, but he's working hard. And here's this young guy plowing and everything and God goes, that's your guy. So he comes and he puts the cloak around Elisha and he says, you can be my apprentice. And Elisha's like, dude, seriously? Yeah, this is awesome. Right on. Hey, so um, can I say goodbye to mom and dad? Elijah's like, who cares? Fine. He's just in a bad mood, right? <laughs> so he starts walking away and Elijah's like, cool. Okay, yeah. And he runs back. He's like, love you, mom. Love you, dad. Okay. And then I'm, I'm going to like burn all this stuff. You guys can kill all the cows that I totally got with my own money and uh, give everybody the food and I'm out of here. Bye. <laughs> What's his point? He ain't coming back. He cut all ties with his past burned everything and said, I'm all in, let's go. And suddenly, Elijah wasn't alone anymore. Can I have the prayer team come on up here? You see, Jesus' brother James wrote a book in the New Testament. And he said what? He said, y'all need to be together and pray for each other, and let me tell you why. Because Elijah was a man just like us, but the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. He prayed that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. He prayed, and then it rained again, but he was just a regular guy. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. You see, I don't care how big and bad you are in the Spirit. You need us, and we need you, because that's how Christianity works. Amen? Let me close in prayer. You have your brothers and sisters up here at the altar waiting to pray over you that you might be healed. But there's a blessing waiting for you today. They're just regular folks, but they serve an extraordinary God. Therefore, they're anointed for today. So please don't leave without getting some prayer. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we're making our job and life harder than it needs to be because, God, we're buying into our world's view of rugged individualism. Our society has convinced us that we're better alone, and you've said that's not true. But, Lord, now that we have designed our lives to be alone, we enjoy our independence and we don't want community. And that's stealing our joy. It's stealing our power. It's stealing our encouragement. And we're suffering in a way that you never designed us to do. So God, I'm praying right now that you would break down some walls. 
that you would connect relationships, that you would start to allow people to begin to see gold in one another, that we would start having community and connection and life. God, that's all part of your plan to bring revival into our hearts, our church, and our region. May you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.